Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. This is episode 186. So I've been having some great feedback, honestly, about the name change of the podcast. So if you haven't heard, I'm thinking about changing the name to Intentional Growth, and the slogan is going to be how to grow the value of your business with the end in mind. So a lot of people are saying, well, you can't get rid of the life after and what about the end? So our whole point of the word intentional and growth and putting those together is that intention means growing with purpose. And in order to understand your purpose, you have to understand what the end is like. And then you grow in order to increase your chances of getting what you want. Keep reaching back out to me. I'm working on some album covers so I can uh, shoot those out to everybody on LinkedIn and social media to get everybody's feedback. But again, intentional growth, how to grow the value of your business with the end in mind. That's what I'm shooting for. I'm not sure because I'm still getting feedback and I haven't made a decision. So if you want to chime in, shoot me an email, shoot me a LinkedIn, and I'm happy to take it into consideration. This episode is for you if you're growing and you're looking at your labor pool and you're having a hard time retaining or bringing people on at a decent pay. And if you're also looking at bringing on capital, whether it's some sort of bank financing, line of credit, any kind of loans, whether it's for your building or your operating company, and or if there's some sort of equity investment or investor triggering event coming down the road, because we all know that growth is expensive. And I've talked about that in my recent episodes and finding different solutions on how to grow more effectively to be more sustainable for your overall business is unbelievably important. And the reason today was such a fun episode for me is because I found a different strategy that can solve some of these problems that I was completely unaware existed other than the big, huge news stories that we hear. I have Justin Erickson on the show today, who is the owner of Essex Capital. And what he does is he helps privately held companies that are growing and looking for labor markets and or different growth expansion opportunities connect with rural cities who are offering various incentive packages to attract these privately held companies into their community.
opportunities for job growth and other economic benefits. We all hear the stories of the big Fortune 500 companies getting insane packages from states or governments in order to bring their companies there. But what I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize is that these rural cities, and by rural, I mean just a, an hour outside of your major metropolitan area, these cities and governments have the incentives of trying to get privately held companies to their marketplaces so that way they can have job growth and how they can sustain and have a vital or revitalized community. It's super important important to them. So there's a reason for them to give incentives to privately held companies. And they don't have the risk of that entire big company just going away and devastating a town. Justin describes how this could be from a small remote engineering firm that is looking for a handful of employees in a different location to a manufacturing plant and or someone that wants to grow, but then just sign a lease. He explains that there are so many different ways and strategies to partner up with these rural communities. For example, he discusses tax incentives for building a building in a different community, which could be, by the way, very interesting if you're the owner who's looking to build personal wealth in a building. And if you're going to build a building anyways, there's ways that you can get funding from that city in order to build that building and or mitigate your taxes over the course of five to seven years. Or if you need help with a working line of credit and or funding for your business, there are ways that these cities will actually pony up and help you because they're interested in job creation. So depending on where you are in the spectrum, I don't think that there's a reason to ignore this. If you're looking at growing and you're going to need some sort of financing for your operations, if you have some sort of real estate needs and or if you have labor issues, all of these issues are major challenges for an entrepreneur. And especially if you're in a hyper competitive metropolitan area, these are strategies that are, I think, unbelievably attractive because of how competitive you could be by reducing your cost of being in business, increasing the sustainability and value of your business, and or increasing your own personal net worth, and helping a community thrive by giving them opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise. Don't forget to check out one of our two-day boot camps. It's how to intentionally grow the value of your business with the end in mind using our two case studies with 10 million in revenue and a million in EBITDA, where we analyze valuations, net proceeds, all the different exit options and how they impact valuations and when you get your money and what your role is like, and then how to double down on your growth strategy by building a strategic plan that has timely and accurate, useful financials so you can measure and monitor your EBITDA and valuation to grow in the direction that you want so you have as many options as you possibly can have down the road. So without further ado, here's my interview with Justin Erickson. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Good morning, Justin. How are you doing? Good. How are you all? Doing good. We, uh, I'm looking forward to having you on the show. You were gracious enough to let me reschedule from last week after I got absolutely hammered by the, the flu from my kids who are Petri dishes from daycare. They come back and uh, we get what every other family in the area has. And I'm glad that I've got a little bit of my mental capacity back because uh, you, know, you and I chatted, I don't know, it was like a, a few weeks ago and 
I was very intrigued with the work that you do and how you're helping privately held small companies in ways that I've never really had heard of other than on the fray from stories that we've that a lot of people hear. So why don't we just, for the listeners, give a little bit of rundown of your business and what you're doing and then your background, how you got to where you're, what you're doing today. Yeah, no, I, again, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. And by way of background, um, I have had my business now for uh, just about 14 years. And to say that it was a well thought out plan uh, when I bought the business uh, is uh, probably the wrong way to explain it. But um, uh, I ran across the guys that had started this business back in the early 90s and had it for at that point about 15 years. And I was intrigued by it and gave them an unsolicited offer to buy it. And I guess careful what you wish for in life. 14 years later, here I am. But I always like to say that I haven't had that Sunday night pit in my stomach feeling now for, for 14 years. If I don't want to go to work tomorrow, I hate my job. So I'm, I'm grateful for what I do. And I don't think I'm out doing the Lord's work per se, but it is fun to see the impact beyond, you know, just engaging with companies and clients and, and getting a paycheck. I think that there's some, some real value and we'll explain what that means here in a little bit. But how I got into this was I grew up in Southern Minnesota, specifically Albert Lee, and I'll spare you the details of my adolescence, but that's relevant because the business that I bought is a rural-focused economic development business. And I know everybody says that their business is unique or they have a niche or competitive differentiators, et cetera. Uh, I'm yet to find anybody that does anything close to what I do, which has its advantages, if you want to put it bluntly, to say I have no competition. The challenge is not a lot of people, if I say, hey, uh, I am an insurance broker or I'm a business lender, I think most people in the business community would know what that means. And I say, <laughs> I run a rural-focused economic development business. There's a lot of what on earth is that? And so the simplest way that I explain it is I help identify companies who are most often in metro areas because I work and live in the Minneapolis metro market. A lot of companies that I work with uh, are based here, have ties, but worked with companies from all over uh, the U.S. and, and some European-based companies who most often probably aren't waking up on a given Monday morning saying, you know what, good news, we're growing, our business continues to expand, and we need to start thinking now about expansion beyond our current location or locations, and gosh, I wonder what's going on in Mason City, Iowa, or Toma, Wisconsin, or Watertown, South Dakota, name a couple of examples. Most companies aren't going to wake up and think about that on a Monday morning, or you get the business owner she gets up on Monday and says, gosh, you know what? This is getting ever more challenging, whether it's the ability or inability to find good labor, to retain it, to afford it. We've got labor challenges or, geez, our costs continue to go off property tax, just general operating costs. We're in a large metro market. That's great. But boy, it's really putting pressure on our margins. Or you get companies that just say, hey, we like where we are and uh, we've got a good core uh, team and a good uh, facility or infrastructure set up, but boy, we don't, we're kind of outgrowing that and yet we don't want to leave. What, what other options do we have? And so what I introduce to companies is the idea of looking outside major metro markets. Now, because a lot of companies that I work with have ties to or are based in Minneapolis, I'll work primarily across the Midwest, but I'm working on a project right now in Ohio and Kentucky and another one uh, down in North Carolina. So, you know, going other locations or other parts of the country is certainly uh, an option as well. But most companies say, hey, all right, if I want to take a, a serious look at this, I probably want it to be within reasonable drive time radius of where I am today, which is completely understandable. Then the question becomes, well, what's different about these 
these rural or outstate, or you could call it greater Minnesota or greater Iowa, et cetera. What's different about these markets? What, what, why are companies going there? What are the advantages to us as a business? And I usually say it, it's broken down into three or four different things. First is, is labor. And that obviously something over the 14 years that I've done this that I have seen is probably in today's market, if you will, uh, at the forefront of a lot of companies. Really like, how can I find, yeah. yeah, how can I find, and then once I have invested in and onboarded employees and trained them, how can I retain those folks? How can I make sure that, hey, I haven't just spent six months or six weeks or somewhere in between training somebody, and then gosh, they decide they find a better opportunity elsewhere. And I see that frustration again and again from companies. And so that is the first thing that uh, a lot of companies are interested in is, are there areas out there where uh, the labor is available? And I'm the first to admit, it's counterintuitive sometimes, right? Hey, somebody's sitting in a market of, you know, two and a half, three million people, major metro area. And no, you're probably not pulling uh, applicants from across the entire metro. But hey, you know, if we've got a five or a 10 or a 20 mile radius, you know, there's a million people there. And yet we're having labor challenges. So you're going to tell me, Justin, we're going to go to a small town of 10 to 15 to 25,000 in population, and it's going to be better. We're going to have better success finding and retaining labor. And I would say, yeah, if you do your homework and make sure that you're vetting on the front end that the labor is going to be there and that you pay and treat people well, then yes. And I have countless case studies and examples of companies where uh, they have been successful and they've alleviated that, that labor burden. And then people say, well, why is that? And the, the reality is you get a lot of people uh, that are working and living in small towns, whether they grew up there or not, and they want to maintain that lifestyle. That's where they want to live. That's what they're comfortable with. That's where they want to raise their families. And if they're given an opportunity to afford that lifestyle and to be comfortable and stay in that community, I don't want to suggest that people in metro areas or you know fickle mercenaries come in every day just looking for the next best opportunity. But what I find in a lot of the smaller communities is sometimes, let's just be honest, there's just a lack of competition. So, well, I was just going to say, like, like J- Justin, the well, some of the stats, and and I want to kind of uh, make a couple points here is that, you know, the, the stats that I've read over the, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are talking about the, you know, income inequality and different things that have been uh, really surfacing to the top right now. And, you know, since the, especially since the 08, 09 recession and, and the growth sense, a lot of the growth and all the jobs have been recovered in the cities and except the rural areas. And so what I find is interesting is like, you know, as you, I'm curious on how you do the homework in there. And, but I think it's, you know, the competition is so high in the cities that that's what it, you know, drives up prices. And, and I, I just even see like from a lot of our clients or the people that we're talking to, like, you know, they, they want to hire cheaper so they can't find the people at the price that they want, but no one's willing to pay high, pay more prices. So there's a whole bunch of weird dynamics going on. Actually, Cash Kari, our, our, the uh, Minnesota Federal Reserve even said something like that you know, with the job shortage and the labor and uh, from the prices and just a lot of issues. So it kind of before we go into how you figure out whether that uh, availability is there, maybe kind of just, I just want to make sure that the, the audience caught with what specifically that you guys are doing, because, you know, it's the financial incentives and the labor and all these different things of helping privately held companies go to these rural areas for different ways. You know, if I'm, if I'm listening in right now, I'm going, well, you know, I don't have 500 employees. I don't have a manufacturing plant. And like you'd said, you know, these aren't people waking up thinking about this stuff all day long. And I think as we unfold this, this episode, people that have issues with growth capital, 
financing, real estate taxes, or labor, this is applicable to all of them, right? And like, there's different things of thinking outside the box. So before we keep diving into labor, can you maybe kind of overall explain, you know, what, does that make sense? I don't know if I, if I took us off. Yeah, it does. Yep. Okay. No, it, it does. And we'll, we'll table for now the labor component. We can come back and get as much detail as we want there, but let's uh, suffice to say for now that that labor, of course, is, is one potential driver. A second one is companies that are saying, hey, you know what? We'd want to grow our business, but we need to be smart about how do we source capital to do that? So if we can't grow it uh, organically or through existing cash flow, well, most companies are going to look and say, we got one or two options. We can go get traditional bank financing, and usually we've got to have the collateral base for that, corporate and or personal guarantees, and there's a cost to that. Well, the other side of the coin is we can go out and, and raise equity. But some companies have said, I don't want to give up uh, ownership or I don't want to dilute myself uh, ownership-wise to take on investors, et cetera. So I feel like we're kind of stuck. Well, there are a whole host of financing programs mm -hmm. uh, that are available from a local level to regional to state to even some federal programs where, and I just finished a project uh, recently where the company said, we're not really having labor challenges so much as everything that we're generating, we're pumping back. Uh, into, future, uh, into further growth in the company, but that's going to a lot of sales and marketing efforts. And so we hate to take a, 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 that capital and divert it towards infrastructure development, if you will. And so we were able to tap some local and state programs. Some are uh, grants, some are what I call performance-based debt, which is a, you uh, project certain investment levels in, in terms of uh, either facility or equipment, I, you know, labor creation, et cetera, you hit those uh, levels and we'll forgive this debt. Uh, there's a lot of subordinated debt programs uh, that will say a bank comes in and says, we're only comfortable going up to X level. They'll come in uh, in a secondary position. So it doesn't uh, disrupt anything with the bank. So there's a lot of attractive programs out there. Of course, there's also tax related incentives, uh, tax increment financing, tax credits and abatements. But what tends to get most of the publicity is intuitive, right? It's going to be the big Fortune 500 companies that are going into mm -hmm. rural or otherwise markets. And they're not interested in loans and, and working capital type programs. <laughs> they're going to be interested in what can they do to lessen their tax liability. And so yeah. that's something I tell a lot of companies is that there are a lot of attractive, if you want to call it upfront cash programs that can absolutely uh, be leveraged to not put a company into that position and either having to go to the bank uh, or go into the equity market side in, in some form or fashion. So, and then, and like, and, and also taxes and labor, right? I mean, like there's, which is so interesting that this is like, and that like, cause you, you, you and I had talked um, on the phone, but then also you just mentioned it here is that everybody, like the big companies get the PR, right? And even outside the big companies and in, in the twin cities here. And by the way, I just want to uh, clarify, there are, there are, are, there are the not programs like this across the US. So if, there, if there's not a Justin in Minneapolis, is there a Justin in North Dakota or in, you know, any other state across the across US? Yeah. So there are from small towns of two, 3,000 in population, obviously up to major metro and suburban markets, every community is going to have an economic development director. And so if somebody has an interest in a given community or region, I always say, just Google, put in city name and economic development director, and, and you usually find the person to start with. Uh, in terms of me, where do I fit in that role? Well, of course, I'm, I'm agnostic in the sense that I am not representing a specific community or even a specific state. I'm saying, what are the company's needs? And then we'll go find the right locations for them. 
So I'm put in a little bit of a different role there as that I'm not, you know, working for a municipal government or whatnot. Okay. But there are a yeah. lot of resources out there to help companies down the path. In terms of other people that do what I do, um, yeah, you can call Deloitte if you want. And you can call other large site selector firms. You can just go to Google and, and type in site selector in whatever state. The challenge is, and this is not a knock on those organizations any more than I'm trying to suggest I'm as good or better than Deloitte, but they're going to be more geared towards working with your larger Fortune 500, other publicly traded, you know, billion-dollar-plus revenue uh, companies. They're usually not going to work with the smaller privately held companies um, for reasons we don't have to get into, but that, again, is where I'm fairly unique and where what I find in talking to a lot of companies that, again, might not be waking up on a Monday morning uh, thinking about this, but then also say, well, we haven't heard about this before. And gosh, we're not very big. And, you know, nobody would be interested in us because we need 10,000 square feet of space or we want to hire, you know, 15 to 20 people. Gosh, nobody would be interested in that. And the reality is it's just the opposite. Now, if a community has a, th- we'll just use 3M, not to pick on them, they're a good company, but I use 3M because there's a lot of 3M manufacturing plants. In fact, I, I would say that they're kind of the, the poster child for over the last 50, 50 to 60 years of figuring this out in the sense that, you know what, it probably doesn't make sense to have a lot of core manufacturing operations in the you know Oakdale, St. Paul area, but that's where we need to keep our management, our engineering and R&D and professional staff. But you know what, let's go put manufacturing in communities where it's going to be a better fit for us from cost of doing business to labor retention, et cetera. And so they made an absolute art or science, depending on how you want to look at it, of, of leveraging that. And I tell smaller companies, you can do the exact same thing. And the reality is, if your community has a 3M plant, you obviously don't want them to go away. And if you're 3M and you call a, a small community, the community is going to take the phone call, obviously. That being said, a lot of these smaller communities are saying, you know what? We're not sure we necessarily want that next major employer. Uh, there was a time, just like Sears used to be the anchor for a shopping mall, if you will, that a company like 3M or another big company could come into a community and say, essentially, give us cheap land, give us uh, a cheap tax structure, give us a good labor force, and we'll come in and we'll create 700, 1,000, 2,000 uh, jobs in your community. And those people will have a job for the rest of their life. They'll have a pension when it's over with. And we'll be here for 50 years. Well, that dynamic has changed. And so a lot of communities now are saying, we can't staff something that needs five, six, seven hundred employees. And even if we can, it's going to come at the expense of industry that's already here. And then we have to lay awake at night terrified that if that company ever leaves, that leaves such a gaping hole in our community that they're saying 10 jobs here, 20 jobs there. That moves the needle, right? I mean, my office is in Bloomington. If I was a small you know, professional services firm, or I did uh, administrative work in the insurance industry, or I was a manufacturer or distributor to get the point, and I'm going to, you know, procure a facility, maybe I'm going to lease something and I'm going to create 30 jobs. The city of Bloomington doesn't care. And it's not to say they're bad people. It's just they've got bigger fish to fry. They've got more things on their plate. Whereas you take that same scope of project and you put that in a community of 10 or 20,000 in population, and now they're saying that is meaningful job creation that moves the needle for us, but it's not just to put it bluntly, it's not too big to fail, if you will. So I want to throw that in there because a lot of companies get scared off and think, well, geez, you know what? We heard about, you know, Amazon HQ2 comes up in a lot of conversations. And I can tell you a lot of states really didn't want that project because of the labor competition and whatnot. 
Right. I mean, it's it, we, it, it makes a wake of a wake of disaster because it steals employment from everybody else. And then like, I mean, it, it puts a huge strain on it. And like, I mean, there was people that had proposals out there where the cities are going to be losing money. <laughs> so it's just like, I'll, I mean, it just didn't actually make any sense. So, I mean, you're, you're literally making the point where like, it doesn't matter what size that like you're arguing that any privately held company that wants to expand in from labor or building or manufacturing plant or whatever should think about this stuff because people are not, it, you're, you're just whole de- debunking the, the, the thought process that they're not welcome when realistically they're more welcome than they had been in the past. Right. Well, and that gets to a point that is a little bit sensitive and hard to quantify. So if we say, okay, what are the drivers for this? Obviously we touched on labor, we've touched on financing programs and incentives. Uh, then there's just overall operating costs are lower. Your your tax structure, property tax, and otherwise is going to be lower. Your utility costs are going to be lower. Whether you're buying, building, or leasing a facility, those costs are going to be lower. So that's kind of a third and pretty intuitive category. But then there's the whole notion of of being wanted, if you will. And I want to preface by saying I'm not making a political argument here. It doesn't matter where somebody falls on the political spectrum. But I talk on a weekly basis with business owners who are saying, you know what? typically privately held, could be first, could be third generation, but company uh, business owners who are saying, you know what, I, I mortgaged my house. I took that personally guaranteed loan. You know, back in the, the, the last recession, we had a rough run of it. I didn't get paid for two years, but I paid all my employees. And you know what, I know all their names. I, I lie awake at night knowing that I am responsible for their livelihood. I know their kids' names. And I hear this time and again from companies who say, and as a result, I don't expect the city mayor to come by and pat me on the back or council members to come over and say, thanks a lot. But I also feel that to a degree, we're not only not being thanked, but we're kind of being, you know, painted as the villain, if you will, that we're the bad guys laughing, giggling all the way to the bank, making uh, money at the expense of our employees. And again, I don't want to take this down a political path other than to say time and again, what I tell a lot of companies is, once you get into some of these smaller towns, that's when it becomes real. And the biggest thing that I get from feedback from companies is not, wow, there's great labor there and, and all sorts of financial incentives and they want to roll out the red carpet and you know our margins can double. I hear some of those things, but I'll hear companies that'll call me after they visit a couple of communities and say, why are, you know, why are we kind of a big deal here? And not so much the egotistical big fish in a little pond, but I was telling you a business owner uh, that I did a project with that we're finishing last week. And she said, it's almost kind of eerie. I come to town, people know who I am. It's as though they knew I was coming up for a visit and do some project work. And I say, because these are folks, again, that want to work and live in these small towns. And they realize without a good business community, they don't have a community. They don't have a property tax base. They don't have jobs in their town that results in not having families in their town. Now the schools are suffering and it's a trickle down effect. So they are appreciative and grateful for every single company and every single job that they have in their community. Again, which is not to say that metro areas aren't or that they're bad, but it is just a different vibe for lack of a better word that companies get when they go to these small towns and say, wow, you know what? Yeah, fine. It's a smaller town. What would take me six months to get a permit for something uh, or conditional use permit or whatever it may be in Minneapolis. Yeah, we can do it in 48 hours in a small town. But you know what? They're asking, what else can we do to make life easier? What can we do to make your business better? 
And again, I'm not trying to sound anti-government or, or political. It's just the reality of just the dynamics of how big thing is, you know, just big, big corporations or governments versus smaller ones. I mean, it make it honestly makes a bunch of sense. And, you know, as if, if you're listening to this and someone's got a question for you, Justin, it's like, okay, do I have to be a manufacturer? What if I have a professional services business? So like before we, cause I really, really do want to dive into like the actual structures and like the pros and cons and like the research on the labor and also the financing structures because I'm really curious about how those actually technically work. But before we go into that, the types of businesses and then like the overall, like what is life like? Like, are you saying, Hey Ryan, you're going to have to move to Albert Lee or like, and you don't have a big 20,000 foot, you know, manufacturing plant. So you run a CPA firm. So like who, you know, how does, you know, maybe kind of paint some scenarios of who this applies for. And then what is this, what does like life look like afterwards before we dive into the, the technical structures? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So I'll answer the first one by saying, from my perspective, I'm industry agnostic. I don't care what industry somebody's in. I'll be the first to admit if, hey, there just isn't a fit here or it's not going to work. And so to your example of a CPA firm, somebody says, hey, we want to grow. And you know what? Being in a, in a smaller market could make sense uh, from a labor and cost and retention standpoint. Well, it probably isn't going to make sense, just to be blunt about it, to go and try to hang one shingle, if you will, in a town of, of 4,000 people that's, you know, an hour and a half from, you know, any regional center like a Mankato or something like that. But um, conversely, those types of companies really nicely in what I call tier two communities. Think of like an Eau Claire or an Ames or a Lincoln, Nebraska, aforementioned Mankato. So I always look at what is the uh, what is the scope of the business? And then we'll see what markets might fit. And again, one could say, well, Mankato is not extremely rural. No, I, when I, my definition of rural is just simply outside of your, your major metro, urban, MSA, et cetera. Hmm. Um, so industry doesn't matter. Moreover, with a lot of these rural areas, I say that ag and manufacturing has and will continue to be the backbone of these communities as uh, kind of economic drivers, if you will. However, they're also saying, you know what, it's easy and it's good to focus on what you know and what you're good at. But we also know not everybody wants to work in manufacturing and ag. And if we want to be competitive at retaining and even bringing new people into our community, we have to have more varied options for them. And so there is a big push to say, what can we do to diversify? And they're realistic about it. I mean, are they looking to land the next you know, Google R&D facility? My wife works in medical device. Are they going to open um, a large medical device, you know, engineering and, and sales operation at Small Shop? Probably not. But that's, again, where working with some smaller businesses who are not your Fortune 500 household names, um, communities say, hey, you know what? We can staff that. We do have the labor to create 10, 20, 30 good employees for that company. And so I'm, again, agnostic on what the industry is. In terms of that, how does this work? You're, you, you hit on a key thing that a lot of companies um, usually clam up at, uh, if that's the right way to put it, where they'll say, okay, I got a rudimentary understanding of this. Now, Justin, show me, are there communities out there? You go do the legwork. Um, and I haven't mentioned, I don't want to get into the whole financial model, but I get paid by a lot of community economic development groups so that if a company says, hey, I want to take a look at this, I want to know what my options are, get some preliminary proposals. But hey, you know what? I don't want to get the checkbook out to pay Justin any more than I want to start driving aimlessly around the Midwest. <laughs> That's where I have a revenue stream there. And I'm just blunt about it and honest, where I can tell a company, you don't have to. Um, I can go do the legwork. I can bring options back to you. And I can bring the communities to you physically or otherwise. 
to show you how serious they are. It doesn't cost you anything. But once we get through that stage and a company says, okay, now this is real. Now it isn't just pins on a Google map, if you will. Now we have specific communities. We have, you know, identified real estate options and the labor pool is there and these incentives look attractive and we've got names and faces. Then it's almost inevitable with most projects, boom, the brakes get put on because now it's, well, this was interesting to look at and explore. Maybe it could make some sense to now we're kind of running out of reasons not to do this. And gosh, this looks really attractive. But now, to your point, do I have to live in Albert Lee? I like my hometown. I've still got friends that, that live there. I don't want to live there again. My life and lifestyle is built around the Minneapolis area. And so if I were a business owner, I, I, I'm going to ask myself, well, hey, you know what? Do I, do I really want to do this? Am I going to have to move to this town? Am I going to be driving back and forth, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours, white knuckling it in a snowstorm on some county road, cursing Justin's name for making me do this? The answer is 99% of the time, nobody moves in terms of owners or principals of the company. And they're only going to do a project um, if they say, you know what, we are comfortable that we could manage a new or a second location and we could do so remotely. Now, there are some business owners that uh, I won't name names, but a guy was meeting with a couple of weeks ago that was just adamant that he had to be able to walk out his office door and be on the production floor. And yet when we were doing the tour of the facility, I was asking some questions about some of the equipment. And he said, honestly, I, I couldn't operate any of this equipment. I don't even know what most of it is. And I'm not knocking the guy. He runs a very successful business. But I'm thinking if there is an issue on the production floor, he's probably not adding a lot of value. But for him, he has to see, touch, and feel it, if you will. I understand that it's a security uh, issue for some companies where others say, as long as I know I have somebody who can be my eyes and ears and that I can trust in the community, yeah, I may still go there once a week, once a month. But I can tell you uh, from countless projects that I've done, thinking of a guy that opened a location in, in Southern Iowa. And last time I talked to him, he said, I haven't been down there in probably four months. And I said, why? And he said, because the guys in my core location in, in Minnesota, he said, I have to be here every day, basically micromanaging. And he said, some of that's on me. But he said, the guys in Iowa, it's as though it's a badge of honor. They don't want me coming down because they feel like if I'm coming down, that they aren't doing their job. And so what we find a lot of times, and this is the beauty of working with privately held companies, is you go through a lot, go to a lot of small towns and you'll see still those major manufacturing centers, the 3Ms, if you will, of the world. And now if I'm 25, I'm 35, I'm 45, and I'm a finance manager, I'm an engineer, um, I'm a lead welder, whatever it is, I'm looking and now I might not love working in a big corporate environment. Maybe I want to work in a smaller uh, company environment, but more pressing is the fact that uh, the lady in front of me or the guy one rung up the ladder, he's not going anywhere for 20 years. So I'm kind of stuck. And so what I find is a very collegial environment where a lot of times, again, nobody wants to come in and say, hey, we're going to steal all of your employees. But I have countless examples where uh, local industry, when it gets to the stage of they're meeting with a company who might be coming to town and they all want to know one another, they'll start offering up some of their employees and say, hey, why don't you um, why don't you take a look at Ryan here? He's a really sharp guy. Well, I mean, I, the, but the untapped potential because it, I mean, I, all I'm thinking, about Justin, is I got a friend from college that's living down in uh, literally like a rural part of Iowa. I mean, it is 
I think, I mean, you know, our wives all judge it based on how far away they are from a target. And I want to say it's like an hour and 45 minutes or something like that. And you're either farming uh, corn or beans, you're either selling seeds, selling tractors, selling fuel, selling crop insurance, financing crop crops or, or equipment. I mean, it's everything around there. And, you know, honestly, his wife, who I went to high school with, was like, on the way of running a bank up here and like down there, she's like, I either work at the hospital, work at a family farm. There is no option. And she's brilliant. So like you literally it's, it's case in point of like, like the, the, the untapped potential of people down in those areas because they just have nowhere else to work. It's gotta be high. Yeah. I, well, and that's without getting back into the details of the labor. One of the things I tell every company is you can spend a whole day ripping through labor shed surveys and, and unemployment statistics and this, that, and the other. It means nothing to me because what they can't quantify is underemployment and how many people are saying, I remember I had one project where a company interviewed a guy for a welding position and they called me afterwards and they said, have you seen this guy's resume? I said, no, he didn't send it to me. And they said he, his last role, he ran a hundred million dollar P&L and he had direct and indirect about 350 uh, reports. And they said, why on earth are you interviewing for a welding job? And he said, well, you know, mom and dad are getting sick, uh, getting older, and, and they've had some health issues, rather. And I want to get back home. I want my kids to spend some time with grandparents, you know, this and there. And this isn't any sort of, you know, tearjerker type story. But he said, look, this was the job that was available. And so I applied for it. And they said, how would you like to be our general manager and run the plant? And he <laughs> said, well, does it pay better? And they said, yeah, a little bit. And and." Again, you see a lot of that, and what, what I'm seeing that I, I can tell you talking to my uh, predecessors I bought the business from that was a little bit different in the early to mid-90s is now it's much more common for people, whether they grew up in a small town like I did or grew up on the farm, et cetera, more and more kids are going off to college, four-year, and I'm not here to go down that rabbit hole, pros and cons and this, that, and the other college argument, but what you're seeing is a lot of people that don't think that they can go back home, whether that is right after they graduate college or they're five or 10 years into their career, because they're saying there isn't an opportunity here. And again, if you're mm-hmm. going to try to move into a smaller community and convince 20 people to up and move out of you know, a major metro area in the first three months and build your staff that way, that might be a little bit challenging. But I find a lot of companies that'll say, hey, if we can get in and we can develop that base that we need to start our operation... Then they're saying, you know what, it doesn't take very long. And now we're getting inquiries from people saying, hey, we understood you come to, came to our mm-hmm. hometown or we've got familial ties there, whatever it is. Um, let me know when there's a job open. Let me know if you need somebody like me. And, and it's just it's so much easier. I mean, that's a big issue that, again, not everything's terribly rural that, uh, in terms of really, really small towns like you were mentioning. But take a town like Iowa City, for example. One of their biggest challenges right now is we're graduating people from University of Iowa, undergraduates you know, graduate level PhD work, and they're coming to us saying, we'd like to stay here. Now this is home to us, but we don't have the opportunities. So we got to go to Des Moines or Chicago or wherever. And there is a huge potential for companies to slide in there and say, hey, you know what, you're graduating. You know, my wife, for example, is a biomedical engineer and went to the University of Iowa. I don't know how many biomedical engineers they're graduating each year, but let's say it's 50 or 75. Could a company get 5, 10, 15 of those people to stay in town, you bet they could. They just aren't pursuing it. 
how about remote? And cause I want to get into then like the, the research behind the labor stuff. And then also I want, I really want to get into like the, the financial structures and incentives too. That, but as far as like the, uh, um, uh, what I was going to say, totally lost it. Um, on the remote. Oh my gosh. Oh, remote. Yeah. Remote. So like outside of just like, you know, where there's a physical building and a plant where there's people there. I mean, is it something where like, if you have a consulting company or even professional services where like, I'm just thinking of people that could like move or like, you know, whether it's call center, customer support or accounting or something like that, where they throw that into one of these areas where you could, you know, I, I'm just thinking of like, to the point where you could probably overpay based on their market rate in their local community, but underpay compared to what's here. And then you're, you don't have some big massive building or something like that. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. So in terms of the, uh, the, the, the disparity, if you will, I always tell companies, you know, pay what you would in a metro area or, you know, pay, don't save money by going in a small town, by shaving off a couple bucks an hour. You'll make it up in yeah. retention and productivity if people say this is a good job, it's got a good benefits package, et cetera. That being said, I had a company recently, and I'm under NDA, so I won't say who, but they're saying, you know what? We're frustrated. Everybody told us we have to be in or near the North Loop of Minneapolis because that's where it's all happening. But they said, we don't have customers <laughs> come and visit us. And you know what? We're getting people walking in that don't really have any experience, but they've got a software engineering degree or they've done it for a couple of years. And they're saying, yeah, I need at least 110 grand starting. And then they said, and then we lose them because they go somewhere else. And, you know, they tend to be a little bit younger. And so they don't have, you know, mortgages and all that. And they said, this is just not working for us. And so they looked at a market. It wasn't Iowa City, but it would be like that where there's a, a, a good, reputable four-year university, uh, computer science department. And the, the first kind of light bulb went off for them when they went over. And they thought they'd maybe meet with somebody from faculty. Uh, and they did, but it, had, it ended up being the dean of the computer science program and the dean of the overall college. And this is not a small college. And they said, uh, sorry, guys, we, we don't, you know, we're not coming looking to hire hundreds of people. And they said, if you hire two of our, our students, graduate level, undergraduate level, when they graduate, that's a win for us. This is worthy for us to spend time on. And what they found was, in kind of doing some comparisons, is that their average uh, applicant in Minneapolis had, I think, 2.5 years of experience and was seeking salary in the $110,000 to $115,000 range. In this market, they found uh, average experience was, I think, seven years, and that uh, requested pay rate was uh, was $78,000 a year. And so they said, why on earth? And then they thought, well, hey, we'll just recruit these people to come move to Minneapolis. You know, they can make an extra thirty grand a year. They got more experience. And none of them were interested. They said, we don't want, we, you can't pay us enough to move to Minneapolis. We don't want to do that. We want to work and live here, bring the job here, and we'll be here. And so that kind of then feeds into that. How do you need to do this? Does it all have to be under one roof, if you will? And, and there are some companies from technology to manufacturing that feel everything has to be under one roof. We need to have that, that culture. We need to have that, that kind of communal environment. And then I get others and say, you know what, we've got two people that we allowed to work from home for medical or other reasons. And you know what, boy, not only are they getting the job done, but they're happier, they're productive. And you know what, if they're taking 45 minutes over lunch and unloading the dishwasher and walking the dog, we don't really care. And so I'm seeing more of that too, <laughs> where, you know, space is not an issue um, in a lot of these rural towns in terms of expense and finding a business or a building to repurpose if that's one's goal. But it doesn't always have to be physical infrastructure led. And yeah, I mean, think of the, the Brainerd Lakes area is one that's a logical one that people can say, oh, okay, that makes sense. You get people that say, you know what, I would love to, maybe I'm 15 years, 10 years from retirement, or 
I'm spending a bunch of time up there anyways. And you know what? Maybe I'd like to kind of shelve, uh, you know, maintaining a house down here and I'll live up at the lake home and I'll maintain an apartment down here, whatever the, the lifestyle drivers are. There's a lot of people that are very qualified that are living in these small towns or would like to live there and they could easily work mm-hmm. from home. So to me, it's just getting a company to say, you know what, this is different. It's not something everybody's doing. Let's, let's dive into it. And I don't want to say you can, you know, pound the square peg through the round hole, but if there's a scenario you can dream up, we can probably make it work. So let's, because I want to go, uh, I love it because I want to peel back of like, what is the benefits, like economic benefits, financial tax, all the different, you know, capital, all the different things that are actual, the, the technical ways that people would benefit from this outside of like you just said, paying someone 80 instead of a hundred. And um, then like, okay, if that person, if that company were to hire those two people or three people from that area, what are the different of the spectrum, right? Because And then if we have time, Justin, we can go back and I'm curious on like the actual labor research, you know, if someone wanted to d- dive more into the labor stuff, but if we can't get to that, um, we'll have to maybe do that at a different time. But, you know, maybe kind of just start with like the, the general, maybe kind of a common incentives from whether it's tax growth, like, I don't know, you probably have the kind of a laundry list of the different ways. And then maybe we can kind of dive a little bit further into those. Okay. Yeah. The easiest way I think to explain it, as I say, first is where are the incentives in financing programs coming from? And you're usually going to have local, uh, which is going to be the, the city, community, municipality, whatever you want to call it, and or county. That's what I kind of call local, the municipal county uh, incentive and financing programs. Then you're going to have regional entities, um, and then you're going to have state agencies. And I'll define each of those and give an example here. Um, now, are there some federal programs out there? There certainly are. As you might imagine, the the higher you go up the ladder, uh, the more arduous the process becomes. And I'm not saying that there aren't really mm-hmm. good people will throw, yeah, well, what about SBIR? Or what about these federal grants? They're absolutely out there and you can take advantage of them. But probably 90% of the projects that I work on, it's going to be a combination of local, regional, and, and state incentives. Then second is, well, what kind of incentives are these? And this is a really loose um, general breakdown. But first is is tax-related incentives. Again, the things that the Fortune 500 are most interested in, and that's what gets the most publicity, but oftentimes is of, of uh, least, if not little, interest to a lot of smaller or, or privately held companies. But nonetheless, there's good tax incentives there. What does that look like? Well, there's things like tax increment financing. If somebody is going to uh, build or, or purchase and retrofit a building, oftentimes uh, the city can bring uh, future streams of tax payments and upfront that cash to be invested in uh, revitalizing or improving the property, um, or they can do it over a, say, a five to 10 year uh, partial to 100% tax abatement. So your property taxes are already going to be lower in these smaller towns, but they can even cut it down more significantly from there. So there's going to be those types of tax incentives at a local level, at a state level, they might uh, say, say that again. So like they're, they're saying like they, they would take their revenue that they would like, if you came to my city and you were going to pay 10 grand a year or whatever, you could take that. So the, the city gives that to the, to the owner for improvements. Yeah. So the easy way I explain it is take a, uh, and you can always tell in these small towns where the industrial park is, because it's going to be on Opportunity Drive or Progress Way. I mean, you can just see by the way they name it. Um, but let's yeah. just say that you say, you know what? I want to go ahead and 
procure a three-acre site on Opportunity Way in the industrial part. In some cases, depending on the location, they might give you that land. It might be free. Now, is it going to be worth what it would be in, in Bloomington? No, but oftentimes you can get that land. Well, then they're going to come back and say, okay, presumably this used to be farmland and was taxed accordingly as agricultural land. Now the city uh, procured it, uh, bought it, and, and has zoned it for industrial or commercial development or whatnot. Uh, again, and not every company is going to build a building, but this is the easiest way to explain it. And so then they mm-hmm. come in and say, okay, well, now we've paid for it as a community, but we are the community, so we're not paying ourselves taxes. So right now, we were making a little bit of tax revenue as Eggland. Now we're probably not making any. But now somebody's going to come and put a 30,000-square-foot building on there. And you know what? Hey, that's going to be a nice jump in property taxes. Just a rough estimate. Let's just say that before it was taxed at, um, I don't know, I'm just, these are not accurate numbers, but just say we were getting $10,000 a year in property taxes before. Now somebody puts a building on there and they're going to be paying 10 grand a month in property taxes. Geez, that's $120,000 a year. That's 110 grand of a net gain. Boy, we're pretty happy about that. But you know what? We also know we need to get that company to come and commit to our community. And we're as interested in the jobs they're going to bring in and industry diversification as we are layering another hundred grand a year uh, in property taxes. So what we can do is we can look out five to seven to 10 years and say, you know what? Um, Over time, Mm -hmm. that'll be half a million to a million dollars in in, uh, new property taxes. We can go ahead and do one of two things. We can just simply... Uh, abate some of that or or cut it down and say, you know, we'll cut that in half for you to make it more attractive. Or let's say you need to come in and you need to do some site development work. So you need to put in a parking lot and light poles, and maybe you need a retention pond and stuff that, you know, isn't necessarily related to the core infrastructure of the facility, but it's stuff that, you know, stubbing in utilities or doing the last pull or whatnot, stuff that otherwise most companies don't really want to have to pay for. And they'll say, hey, you know what, this is something we can give you $400,000 up front to contribute to that. So there's a lot of flexibility there where when companies say, well, we don't, you know, the tax stuff isn't of a great interest to us. Well, it's oftentimes worth looking into. It might not be the driver for a company to consider to do this in general or pick, uh, pick a, a specific community, um, but it, it certainly is attractive. And then again, that's going to be kind of local tax stuff just to go through the financial stuff a little more quickly here. Then when you start looking at the, uh, the state level, they're going to do a couple of things. Oftentimes they're going to have uh, state income tax credits that they'll give you, which is candidly only as good as, uh, in most cases, your liability that you have. So if you're making and selling products nationwide, you really don't have much of a Minnesota tax liability. It oftentimes might not be all that attractive to you, but oftentimes there's going to be some some tax credits there that are going to be tied to, again, the investment um, in the job creation projections that you put forth. A lot of times they'll do uh, sales and use tax uh, on machinery uh, and equipment. They'll rebate that. Same with construction materials. They'll oftentimes give you a rebate on, on taxes paid there. So again, it can be dependent upon the size and scope of project. The tax stuff can be fairly significant. Then you get what I call your more uh, financing related uh, tools. So if one bucket is taxed, the second I would say is going to be upfront cash programs to help with working capital, equipment, et cetera. And so you're going to have um, different loan programs from a local to a regional to a state level. Without getting technical, they're called revolving loan funds. As the name suggests, they lend money out on a revolving basis. As it gets paid back, they lend it out again, funded through myriad different means. But the variance between these programs versus, say, a bank is, do they have a risk aversion? Well, they're not looking to just give money away and cross their fingers, but they're not going to look at it through the lens of a bank who's going to say, basically, we need to make sure that we're so buttoned up on this thing 
that God forbid the company can't perform on the loan. We've got recourse on yeah, a personal level, a, et cetera. And they're going to come in yeah, in some yeah. cases, they'll do um, working capital loans. They'll certainly take a second position to a bank. So they'll come in knowing that the bank is going to get paid first um, before they ever do. So it can be very, very attractive. Uh, different lending programs out there. I did one. And is this coming from the state? Is this coming from the state level or from local counties and governments? Or usually both. So what I say is, if you meet uh, somebody from uh, you know local city of XYZ Economic Development, they probably have a loan fund. Oftentimes, the county will have a loan fund. You will meet with the you know co-op that's a member of Great River Energy. They probably have a loan fund. The state of Minnesota has their loan fund. So there's. There's a lot of these programs out there. Now, sometimes uh, they can be pretty micro in nature, if you will, $25,000, dollars $100,000. Sometimes we'll take some of those and, and layer them together. And now all of a sudden you've got two, three, four, five hundred thousand. It gets attractive. There's one program that is um, administered by uh, utilities, of all things. And it is not USDA dollars per se, as though uh, it is, is a loan guarantee program from the USDA. And that can be up to two million. And this is where companies really get interested because oftentimes it's structured such that it's a ten-year loan, no closing costs, no prepayment penalties, and zero percent interest. So, from the standpoint of people saying, "Well, <laughs> just this- say that again," because say it again because this is why people need to like start thinking about this stuff. Because say those terms again. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a ten-year loan. Most often, uh, limited if if not no closing costs, no prepayment penalties. You want to pay it down uh, sooner, you can. Uh, unlike some of the SBA restrictions and whatnot. Um, and but it's 0%. <laughs> 0%. And so I worked with the company a couple of years ago, and I said, just bluntly, take it. If you don't want to, just give it back later, but uh, you know, keep it in your account for now. <laughs> now, I want to be you know, uh, careful, Ryan, in one regard. It's not that you just show up and there's people just you know, throwing you know, big golf checks, Happy Gilmore style at you. But So there is some, some paperwork and some processes to work through, but I can tell you, course, in yeah, my yeah. opinion, most of these incentive and financing programs go underutilized. They aren't overutilized. They aren't, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is. I want to say exposed, but that's they're wrong. Not, to say. They're not, a, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not, people aren't aware of it. I mean, like, and it's so interesting into like, I don't know if you and I were talking just about this conscious capitalism. And I just think about how, like, how all these incentives are, are, are all these different stakeholders are getting aligned, right? So the fact that you said like, if you really actually boil it down to the math that, you know, it sounds like it's too good to be true. However, What's important for these local counties and governments is to bring job creation there for the vitality or the vitality of their county. And it, this is very much in line with where the whole uh, the theory uh, or the hypothesis behind the opportunity zones came in too. So, I mean, it all makes sense why the governments would want to do this. And you know, why they would be willing to take second position to a normal bank is because there, I think it's very interesting because the counties have this in these cities have the same incentive as the owner, which is keep people employed. So many times the owner will take no pay to keep people employed. Like if it was just a private equity firm, they don't usually have the people get their money first. <laughs> it's, it's like a totally different. So like, I think it makes when you actually break it down mathematically and from the long-term reason behind it, it actually makes a bunch of sense. And just knowing that this is possible. So like knowing like in, I, I think it's interesting when you say this about the, the kind of that overall structure and how they're not just handing out money is obviously you have to go through the normal paperwork, just like if you're going to a normal bank, like here's what I need. What I find interesting is I've, I've heard people were like, like you said, they're either given the land or given the building or like they have these amazing opportunities for these, uh, these capital structures. So like, 
I, I'm just trying to think like, you know, there's a lot of the questions of what's the recourse, right? And I think that's where this is above and beyond anything that people have seen because it's not like a bank or some like private equity firm or some investor who's going to come in and with all these demands and terms and conditions. So like, you know, what is this, what is the range of, you know, between the loans and the working capital and all that stuff? What is the range of like, what happens? Like what, like for the owner, what are the big, huge takeaways or the, 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 I don't know if what I'm asking makes sense or the compare and contrast compared to the normal, normal uh, way of financing. Yeah. So the way I guess, and I'm I'm not sure I'll answer your question correctly, but usually back to the whole notion of if you want to make it as simple as possible, you get typically three ways to finance your your business or growth. You can put in your own money or cash flow from the business. You can go to a bank, pledge collateral, personal guarantees or otherwise, or you give up some ownership in your business. And most companies say, yeah, those Mm -hmm. are the three large categories here. And what most companies don't do is they don't trade, if you will, the investment they're going to make in physical infrastructure. And again, that isn't necessarily building a 100,000 square foot production facility. That could be signing a five-year lease on 5,000 square foot of office space. But for these communities, they're saying, you know what, that company is investing, they're revitalizing a property, they're bringing new industry to town. You know, you can trade that investment as well as the human capital investment, which is companies say, well, yeah, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to hire 25 people anyways. Okay, what are you doing? And question I'll ask is, have you looked at monetizing that? And they'll say, what, are, what on earth are you talking about? And saying, well, Depending upon now, again, if you're doing that in Bloomington, nothing against the city of Bloomington, but they're probably not going to do much for you. But in a smaller town, that's where it opens up all sorts of potential options where they're saying, hey, we want those jobs. We want this company here and we have financing and incentive programs we can put on the table. You you trade us the job creation, if you will, and, and we'll we'll give you the capital. And again, that's an oversimplification, but that's the reality. And that's what oh, I find it's great. Far too business few businesses looking at it that way. And then some will say, Well, now hold on here. I get this a lot, especially from companies that might already have operations in rural areas and whatnot. They say, you know, we've we've made investments. We've and the private equity group I was working with, they said, We've bought companies and grown them in rural areas. How come they aren't coming to us and, and saying, Hey, we've got some incentive and financing programs for you? And I said, well, whether it's at a local municipal level all the way up to, you know, in the case of Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development, all incentives, whether it's a grant or forgivable debt, that stuff is very attractive. I mean, the loans are nice, but the forgivable debt and the grant programs get really attractive. But all of these are in some form or fashion a derivative of taxpayer dollars from local sales tax to, you know, state taxes, et cetera. And just as if you file your, uh, say, your federal uh, income tax return here in the next month or so, you're not going to get, hopefully, any letter from the IRS, but you're not going to get one that they say, you know what, Ryan, you seem though, man, you know what, there's a couple tax credits here that you could have qualified for in terms of deductions. It doesn't look like you elected to do so. So we'll go ahead and rework your return and we're going to send you a refund. I mean, they don't do that. And in this case, that's what I tell <laughs> companies is just as the IRS says, you can do your own taxes or you can pay somebody to do them for you, but it is incumbent upon you to do them and do them correctly. It's same in the world of incentives. So they're saying, hey, you can get a guy like Justin to help you. You can do it yourself as a company. There's no right or wrong to that. But you know what? It's not us coming to you. You have to, you have to seek it out. You have to come to us. And then we're more than happy to sit down. But we can't go back to John Q. Taxpayer and say, we're actively going out to companies and saying, hey, can we help you? You want some financing? No, the companies have to initiate the conversation. Well, and what I find just what you have to explore it. I mean, I've had different people on the show, whether it's cost segregation or opportunity zones or these, I mean, just different 
very specific strategies on how to actually make a bunch of more money because it's all the stuff is within the legal boundaries and it's just understanding how it fits into your overall your overall strategy and like you know, when I think about this, you know, so there's obviously a lot of incentives for a building. So as an owner, you might own the building personally. So first of all, this is a, a potential way to grow personal wealth. And I don't know if, if, and by the way, that might be a good clarification point. Does the building have to be owned by the business or by the owner or does it not matter just as long as it's a normal operation? Like you normally would do something along those lines where you're probably either you know, partnering up with a real estate investor and or a landlord and or you're doing it yourself in a different entity. I mean, there's ways to grow your personal wealth by how, you know, like getting help from the counties and cities like this. But then also, how is that different from the operating entity? Like, you know, maybe you can describe a little bit more about that forgiven, uh, forgivable loan or the working capital or the, the revolving line, because I think those are challenges that, you know, a lot of owners have. I mean, like growth is expensive and it's hard and, you know, just understanding that you have more flexibility because of having a good partner, like a a city or a county, like this is just, I just think it's too good to be uh, ignored. Yeah. And I, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to call these communities, you know, rich, rich uncle Larry, who's going to give you money regardless. And if you don't end up paying him back, well, he wants to see you be successful. I mean, there are some, some rules and regulations if you follow, if you will, but yeah, I, I like to say this is an instance where the community and the economic development folks, they want a seat on your side of the table and say, how do we make this work? Not this is what's going to work for us, take it or leave it. And so with that, in terms of structure, I've seen a little bit of everything. I mean, I've worked on a number of projects where somebody's going to build something, then somebody's going to buy something, then somebody's going to lease something. So any of those scenarios are in place. So somebody says, well, I don't want to own a building. I don't want to build a building. That's fine. You don't have to. We can do a lease. We do a lot of lease to own options. I've got one right now where the community said, we'll use our bonding and we'll put up a 30,000 square foot. Uh, it'll be a food grade production facility, which is very hard to come by. And the company's saying around here, I got to get the land and the metro, and then it's probably going to be 150 to 200 bucks a foot. You know, I'm very quickly three, four, five million dollars into this. And the community came back and said, we'll build it for you and we'll use our, our <laughs> bonding authority. And we will structure it as a 15-year lease. And at any point, you are welcome to pay off the bond and take the building. Or if it goes the full 15 years, then we're going to be the first ones driving over at the uh, the end of the lease term. And you write us a check for $1 and the building's yours. And so the company is saying, hey, you know what? I want to do this for a long time. But all of a sudden, this is a way it's going to be cheaper for me to get into this property. I'm not going to have to pay anything up front. And the whole time that I'm paying this quote-unquote lease... I'm essentially building equity. And so we see some of that, but I... Right, I'm I mean, not, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, but I've got another project right now where the operating entity will come in and they will create uh, the jobs and bring the, the, the industry representation, if you will, to town. But then they have a, a separate LLC uh, that they have a minority interest in because they have other investors that are saying, you know what, we don't want to invest in the operating entity, but we look at this as an opportunity. We want to own the building and you're basically going to be our tenant. And so we feel very confident about that. And again, without getting into the weeds, I do see some people say, hey, you know what? Maybe I could be a speculative real estate investor and I could go out and start building facilities in these rural areas and I could get all these incentives. Usually it has to be in tandem. And what I mean by that is if I am an enterprising developer, life has been good the past few years and I got some cash to invest and diversify, you could go in and, and I can help you find land in a good community and put up a building and you'll probably be able to lease it or sell it and do probably okay with it. But in terms of the, the tax increment financing or job creation related incentives, you aren't going to get those as the developer, the builder. 
because you have to be working in tandem with a company that's going to bring those things in. So it's not a, if we build it, they will come. Therefore, here's incentives. Those have to work in tandem. But in terms of different owners and operating entities and, and real estate holdings, I mean, you can, as you know, you've got financial experience. You can make the stuff as confusing and complex as you want to, but we, we can always work through it. Yeah, I won. And again, like you said, I mean, just simplicity does make sense. And like, it's just, I mean, it just is so intriguing because like you said, if you're going to be growing, like, I mean, this is what I, I think to go back to your, your, your last point is, you know, the speculative and like, you're just moving things around to just gain the system obviously doesn't work. I mean, the whole point here is longevity, job creation and sustainability, right? I mean, if you're, if you're not doing that, then you should, you might as well forget it, right? Cause it's going to be harder to play these games. But like, if you're bringing people, whether you're going to sign a lease or build a building, or you're going to have remote people or not remote, I mean, all the, I mean, like you said, no matter what you're doing, there's probably a fit at some point. And if you're going to do it anyways, you might as well like look at this because of the p- potential to build equity in buildings and or to get the incentives to reduce your overall cost of business. I mean, it's almost and also do good. <laughs> it just it makes it makes so much sense to, to ignore it. Honestly, Justin, it's pretty crazy. Well, I, I'll tell you, there's a company I did a project with up outside of Fargo about seven years ago. Now I'm working on another one, and these guys have uh, a lot of experience in rural areas, so it's not hard for them to get their arms around how all this works. But they say, hey, this is your business. You live it day in, day out, just like an accountant staying up to date on gap accounting rules and, and tax code changes. So they say, you help us, you take the lead on this. But they asked me a question recently, and they said, your job's got to be probably pretty easy. And I kind of chuckled. I said, nothing's easy for me. But I said, why do you think that? And they said, well, company's got to just call you and say, hey, you know, can you help us find a good location? And I said, well, it doesn't quite work that way. And I said, I get a lot of pushback from companies. No, that doesn't apply to us. We wouldn't fit. They wouldn't be interested in us. And these guys said, why on earth wouldn't somebody take a look at this before they start to make long-term decisions on hiring staff and committing to either owning a building or even, a, you know, it's hard now. You want five to 10,000 square feet of space, whether that's good office space, class A down to just warehouse space. In this market, yeah, real estate market, you're probably looking at a minimum of a seven-year. In a lot of cases, it's going to be a 10-year lease. Well, you're making some long-term commitments there for your business. Wouldn't you at least want to know what these other options look like? But again, I could do a better job marketing what I do and, and getting out of the business community. But also, I get a lot of businesses that just, nope, that wouldn't apply, and they just shut it down immediately. And I think, again, I'm not asking you to move to Albert Lee tomorrow. But you ought to take a look at this because if I have the chance to have this in-depth of a conversation with the business, most of the time they come away saying, we probably have to take a look at it because it checks all the boxes in terms of benefits that we aren't getting being here in a metro area. Well, no kidding. I mean, like, I can't tell you how many of my clients are just pissed off at the cities that they're dealing with because of all the uh, politics and you know what, and I mean, just like the expenses and, and, and but also uh, not to go down a, a major geeky route in that, cause I know we're running short on time here is, but like the people that are out in that are, that are entertaining stuff like this, I don't know how much you know about ESOPs, Justin, but the fact that you could also sell it to your employees using an ESOP structure and get benefits from the buildings and or tax credit. I mean, like there's some different crazy strategies you could layer on top of this to really help revitalize counties and cities and reduce the overall cost of doing business dramatically for companies. Yeah, no, I've worked with a couple of ESOPs. I'm not the guy who's got the technical aptitude to tell somebody how to set it up or what all the pros and cons are. Uh, I know it's not just something you fall back into, but I have uh, worked with a couple 
companies, and there's a couple right now, that is one of their exit strategies. And the reason that they're looking at rural markets is they sit around here, you know, our retention is so bad. And yeah, we're going to have a slowdown in the economy. We're going to have presumably at some point another recession, and that'll take the, 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 um, the foot off the gas pedal. But you know what? We have now seen it for about 15 years get worse, not better. So even through the ups and downs of the last recession, we've seen that we just aren't retaining people is long and it's intuitive, right? People, it used to be, you know, grandma and grandpa went to work for one company and 40 years later, 30 years later, they retired. I mean, it's nuts. Um, most people don't do that anymore. But for the ESOP strategy, uh, a lot of companies say, if I'm in a smaller town, I need to have not only people that, that would want to participate in the ESOP and would be of, you know, quality uh, employees to do so, but they have to be, want to be motivated to stay with the company for five to seven to 10 to 20 years to take full advantage of that, those ESOP benefits. And so that is a huge, I'd say, strategy of going into you know, a tier two or a rural market is that that yeah. makes that option more credible. Oh, yeah. And then you, I mean, if you're looking at buildings too, if you could still separate the the building from the, the business, I mean, there's some crazy things you could be doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know running, running short on time, obviously we could both go on for a long time about this, but you know, if you're, if you were to, to, I mean, we've told a lot of stories and you've, you've covered some solid ground, Justin, so I appreciate it. So if there's, you know, someone that's sitting there going, okay, I'm, I, I get this, I get the, I get the kind of the arguments that you guys are talking about. What is the best place to start? And I think you kind of mentioned it, but I think you, you know, it's worth restating how you get paid because it's so, uh, it's, it, there's almost no risk other than the, the time of chatting with you. So what, a, you know, what's the easiest way to start? What's your contact information? And then kind of, you know, give a, the overview of your structure again. Yeah, well, it's going to be biased when I say this, but the easiest place to start, give me a call, shoot me an email, um, because I can walk people through any scenario. They say I'm a, you know, a technology company who is, you know, running high gross margins. I'm flush, but I need space and I need labor. Well, that's different than the manufacturer that says I'm running at nine points of margin and I'm uh, struggling in my current location. I need capital to fuel this growth. So depending upon uh, the specific scenario, I can walk people through what would this look like and what are some community examples, et cetera. So they can call me if they say, nah, this guy seems you know, like one of those consultant types, I don't want to call him. Uh, again, that's where I say my business model, financial model, if you will, and I mentioned I bought this 14 years ago. What I essentially bought was, and people say, why would you buy a consulting business, if you will? Isn't it just you? Yeah, it largely is me and then the people that I bring in to help on projects. But the point is, it had that, that recurring revenue model. And that's what the founders, I think, came up with smartly was to say, okay, we, we believe and we want to help rural areas. But most companies, again, if they aren't actively thinking about this when we first encounter them, are they going to really want to get the checkbook out to pay us? And do they really want to drive around the Midwest? And the answer is is most often no. So in turn, I've got, just to be honest about it, uh, a, a group of communities across seven states. If you count counties and regional groups, there's probably 100 plus communities there that are all paying me, not on a success-free basis. I don't have a bias towards them, but they're paying me saying, Justin, you know, essentially help us expand our marketing, be our eyes and ears to a degree in, in metro areas, talk to the business community. So if a company says, I want to explore this and I want to see who would be interested, what my options are, we can go out and do that. And without getting off tangent here, in fact, I do uh, three events each year too, where I have all my communities come in. So for companies that say, I want to explore this, but I also want to look these guys in the eye and vice versa and have them tell me this is real. Great. I'll bring them all to Minneapolis. You don't have to travel anywhere. Um, that's part of what they pay me for too. 
But the point is, why I underscore to companies is, if I don't think it's a fit, I'll be the first to say, I don't think we can do anything for you. I don't think this is going to be a good fit. Or let's send it out to some communities and see what their confidentially, of course, but let's see what their feedback is. And if we don't find a fit, I'm not angling for a retainer. I'm not angling for a payday. I only want to pursue this if a company says I'm motivated. And in turn, I know that uh, there's communities out there that are both interested and can meet their needs. And so, I again, everybody's going to say, oh, I'm one of the good guys and I don't have any biases. But I mean, a lot of times companies get scared off and say, well, you're going to call me six months later and you know, send me an invoice because I went to one of your communities? No. I mean, this is what they're paying me for. And this is the work that I do. Yeah, now, they're, I, they're, they're looking for you. They're looking for you to help grow their communities. Exactly. Period. Exactly. So lastly, how do people get a hold of me? My email is, is a bit of a mouthful. It's just Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N, at what I call my holding company, which is Essex Capital. So it's Justin at Essex, E-S-S-E-X, Capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, L-L-C. So all one word, Essex Capital, L-L-C, dot net. Um, my phone number, 612 281 Four six four eight. I won't sound like one of those cheesy uh, real estate commercials on on uh, on the um, radio, but if you call that number, that's my number. You'll get me. Um, I'm an answering machine or somebody else. Um, <laughs> and then again, if you want to send out uh, any of my contact information too, let me know. But my my job, and I'm always happy. I get a lot of calls. Somebody says, "Well, I don't know if this would be a fit," but okay, let's take twenty thirty minutes uh, or whatever we need to, and let's talk about it. Because even if it isn't a fit. From my standpoint, it's always time well spent because it's that lady that I talked to who calls me six months later and says, hey, remember that uh, conversation we had wasn't a fit? You know what? I was at my networking group or I was at my CEO roundtable group. And you know what? Somebody else was talking about something. It just seems like it's what you do. That is, I found the only way to grow my business is, is word of mouth and networking. Um, so I look at all those conversations and helping companies down this path is is really an investment in, in, in my time and a time well spent. Justin, I love it. And I'm rooting for you and all the, the different people that should be exploring this because it's something that uh, needs to be talked about a lot more because of the opportunities for everybody. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Justin. I hope you learned a couple new things. I learned and my big takeaway is always ask. If you know what you want and you can go ask for it and you know who to ask, people like Justin who know the strings to pull, look at the things that you can do. This is not just for the big box shop who's going to get all the incentives. You can go out and you can ask for things that are financial packages, incentives, or help hiring people. Cities want to help you so that way you can hire people to revitalize and to grow their economy. It's just that simple. Another big takeaway is knowledge is power. And if you want more power, check out one of our two-day boot camps. It's called Intentional Growth, How to Grow the Value of Your Business with the End in Mind. And we do this by learning the five principles. And when you walk out of that boot camp, you have clarity on how valuations work, how you're going to handle out of the blue offers, what value you need to achieve in order to hit your financial outcomes, as well as have as many options as you possibly can. You're going to be talking like this. I want to reach $2 million in EBITDA, hit a $12 million valuation so I can get X amount of money in my pocket so I can do an ESOP or private equity recap. And now I need to grow by doing X, Y, and Z in order to get there so I can increase my chances of getting what I want. 
it's that level of clarity and then how to hire the right people and then be able to manage that entire situation and strategy that you walk away with. It's literally power because you understand how the whole picture works. If you want more information, go to our website, arcona.io, check out the two-day curriculum and the agendas on the website. I'm happy to jump on a phone call with anybody, walk through the agenda. We just had 15 entrepreneurs that just went through it. So we have people that are willing to give you the idea of what it's like after you walk out and you now have an understanding of how the world of valuations and value growth and exits work. So with that being said, check out next week's podcast. I've got a gentleman on there named Todd where we talk about his whole bootstraps to extremely high growth to a private equity recap and he shares the ins and outs of all the lessons he learned.